welcome to Carmel Presbyterian Church's podcast channel. Open up a Bible or just listen in. We hope this week's message is a blessing to you. Morning. Is it still morning? Yes, we got a little bit of morning left. Uh, my name's Reed. Uh, I am so thankful to be here. I, I was driving up and I thought it was three years ago right about now when I came for the first time. And, and you are my family away from my family. And I just want to say thank you for your warm welcome. Thank you in advance for laughing at all of my jokes this morning. I appreciate that. Yeah, there we go. That's what we're talking about. There's, there's a work of God going on in there. But uh, <laughs> So you have been in, in uh, the book of Ephesians for, as Tim said, about five weeks. I said, Tim, Presbyterians are precise. So let's get it five weeks. And man, I have really enjoyed Tim's teaching. I, I listened to a couple of sermons coming up yesterday from Santa Barbara, and I had to pull over and kneel down and become a Christian all over again. But uh, Tim, your teaching last week, well, no, they were both, I heard two on the way up. They were both excellent, and uh, thank you for that. And you, you lifted me. All right. Um, Paul is writing in Ephesians to a church that is, has some issues. Jews and Gentiles, they, they don't really like each other. And you might say the, the backdrop of the whole letter is about reconciling these disparate peoples. So we're going to hear this text that comes right after the, what we heard last week in the first half of Ephesians 2, where Paul says, you were all dead and, and God made you alive together in Christ. And now he's going to move on, and he's going to talk specifically, primarily, to Gentiles and show them that they're included in the body of Christ with Jews. So to, to make this spatial, would you mind over here, would you be the Gentiles? You have no choice. You're the Gentiles. <laughs> and over here, you're the Jews. And, and, and this is Ephesus. And we had, in the first service, we had the choir here, and I said, you're the high priests. And they were looking over us, but they're not here. But at any rate... Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. If your Bible is open, uh, why don't you just listen to God's Word? Keep your Bible open because we're going to look at it. But uh, for now, just hear God's Word. And I, and I want you to kind of see the way it works out spatially. Paul says at the beginning, Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. What is made in the flesh by hands? Remember that at that time, you were separated from Christ, aliens, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus... You who were once far off have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances so that he might create in himself one new man out of the two, so making peace, 
and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. In church, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Okay. Uh, what a passage. If, if we leave here and we're hungry and we, you go down Ocean Boulevard, I think it is, and somebody comes out to you and says, I saw you walk out of that church building. Would you answer? Would you, would you settle a dispute between my brother and me? We're arguing about where God lives. Where does God live? What would you say? What's the easiest answer? Go ahead, say heaven. I mean, Psalm 115, our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. It's a good answer, but this passage says, don't be so sure. And maybe one of you went to, you know, Harvard or something, and you want to use a little Latin and say, well, God is omnipresent. He lives everywhere. I mean, Solomon, when he dedicated the temple, said, you know, the whole universe can't contain you. How much less this little house? So God is omnipresent. He lives everywhere. It's a good answer. But according to this passage, don't be so sure. We're going to see something that, that is utterly startling. In one sense, we can see the whole Bible from the perspective of a creator God, a self-revealing God, a triune God, seeking to live with humanity, with people. And over and over again, this almost sounds like it's heresy, over and over again, God tries to dwell with humanity, but it doesn't work. I'm going to tell you the way I'm going to approach this passage. Have you ever been to uh, Paris and gone to the Louvre Museum? The Louvre. I got, I got, I got, I didn't know to pronounce it Louvre or Louvre. And somebody who lived there in the first service told me it's Louvre. So I, I, now I got it. If you go there, it's a massive museum and it's wonderful. And in, if you're like I am, in the morning when you get there, you start looking at the art and you get your phone on and you, you listen to the podcast and Rick, Rick Steves tells you how, what a great piece of art it is. And it's really impressive and you go, wow, and I could stay here all day. About 3.30, you don't care what you're looking at, right? <laughs> you think there's Rembrandt or Picasso or Michelangelo or whatever, and you think, I just want a cup of coffee. I want to lie down and get in bed, you know, because you're, you're so tired and you've seen so much. Well, I've preached as a pastor through the book of Ephesians three different times over 39 years at one church. And somehow I missed the end of the museum tour in this passage. I, I think I was just too tired by the time I got there. At one point, I memorized the whole book and I recited it as a sermon for the church and that was pretty cool. I couldn't do it now. I was, I was only, you know, 18 when I did that. 
there's, there's a little nugget in here that I'd never seen until this week as I was preparing for the sermon. And I'm going to share that with you, and I hope it gives you one-third of the excitement it gave me because it, you'll be changed by it if you get it. But again, over and over again, God tries to live with humanity, and it doesn't work. So you could think of the Bible as, as a series of six temples. Do you know what temple number one is? Are you sorry you sat in the third row now because I'm going to be <laughs> asking you a question? <laughs> First temple is the Garden of Eden. You say, that's a temple? Yes. Adam is created outside the temple. He's brought in from the east all temples in the ancient Near East, including the tabernacle, including the temple in Jerusalem. You entered from the east. Inside the temple, Adam and Eve are told to work and to serve the Lord in the garden. And those two verbs are used of the Levitical priests in the tabernacle and in the temple. And God is said to walk and dwell with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, which God promises he will do in the tabernacle in the wilderness. So the Garden of Eden is presented as a temple, but guess what? It didn't work. Why? Adam and Eve deliberately disobey God, right? And they have to leave the garden. They go out by, by the way they came in, and they never get to go back. The, the temple is guarded by cherubim, angelic creatures, and they don't get to go back. It doesn't work. And so God moves back to heaven, ostensibly. And years and years and years later, the people of Israel have been constituted. They're delivered out of Egypt as a slave people. They move into the wilderness, and God says, it's time for you to build me a portable temple called the tabernacle. So Exodus is simultaneously the most exciting book in the Old Testament and the most boring book because the second half of Exodus are all these elaborate instructions about how to build the tabernacle and how to decorate it. So they do that, and the book ends with the tabernacle. It's a portable temple. They called REI. They said, give us your biggest tent. And, and they decorated, and the tabernacle is in the midst of the people of Israel, and they all face inward, and God is dwelling in the midst of the people of Israel. When the tabernacle is dedicated, there's fire and lightning and smoke and, and, and glory, so much so that the Levitical uh, priests have to get out. They can't even serve there because God is there. But it didn't work. They take the tabernacle through the wilderness. They finally go into the land of promise 40 years later. And the, the tabernacle just kind of disappears. It's just lost in the shuffle. And the people of Israel start to worship at a place called Shiloh. And they start to worship as pagan, um, the pagan peoples that they are there to replace. It didn't really work. 950-ish B.C., the third king of Israel, King Solomon, he builds the third temple, Garden of Eden, Tabernacle. He builds a huge temple in Jerusalem. Well, it's not that big. It's 90 feet long, 45 feet wide, but it's really well constructed. Beautiful. And that temple stood there. How long did it stand there? Do you know? This is going to be on the test. 400 years. Go ahead, say it. Yes, you're right. 400 years. Stands there 400 years. So now God again lives in and in the monk, amidst his people, right? Well, no, it didn't really work. At various times, the temple is desecrated. Pagan worship takes place there. The artifacts sometimes are sold off by different kings. And finally, uh, 586 BC, the Babylonians come and 
utterly destroy that temple. It's gone. It's raised to the ground. And the people are carted off to Babylon about a thousand miles away. So I guess God has to go back to heaven. And 70 years later, the people of Israel go back to Judah. And guess what they do? I bet you know. What do they do? Build another temple. This is under Zerubbabel and his leadership. So when the tabernacle is built, there's fire and lightning and, and smoke, and they have to get out. When Solomon's temple is dedicated, there's fire and lightning and smoke, and the, the Levitical priests have to get out. When Zerubbabel's temple is built, nothing. Just a temple. In fact, when the Roman general Ptolemy goes into the temple years later, he goes into the Holy of Holies, which was supposed to take a person's life if they went in there. He goes in there and he comes out and he says, it's empty. So I guess it didn't work. And that temple stands until the time of Jesus. It's dramatically remodeled by King Herod. And along comes a guy named Jesus. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. The Word became flesh and tabernacled, templed, dwelt, same word, among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So God now again lives with us, right? In John chapter two, Jesus comes into Herod's temple and he makes a whip. It's pretty cool. And he overthrows the money changers and gets rid of the people selling animals. He says, don't make my father's house, which is supposed to be a house of prayer. Don't make it into a house of commerce. No Walmart in the temple. So now God again lives with his people, right? Well, wait a minute. Jesus only lives a little while and they kill him. I know what you're thinking, but he rose from the dead. He did. Are you also thinking, uh-oh, 40 days later, he ascends to the Father. So now I guess God's in heaven again, right? Did you know that there's another temple, the sixth temple? Jesus comes back 10 days later. Did you know that? In the person of the Holy Spirit, where does God then live? God then lives in his people. We are the dwelling place of God. All these temples that did not work, are, they, they find their consummation in the church of Jesus Christ. Uh, one point I want to get today, and if, if, I get, if you get this, when I drive home, I'm going to be happy, okay? So make me happy. The point is this, God dwells in his church. God dwells in his church, therefore we should cherish his church. Now, I'm going to take you in the back of the museum. At the end, we're going to see now what we usually see at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and we don't really care. I'm going to start at the end and just briefly look at the beginning, but look with me at verses 19 to 22. This is the exit of the museum. The passage ends with the Apostle Paul telling us that there is a church which is an inhabited building. I know you've had preachers in this pulpit say, the church is not a building. No, it is a building. It's right in this passage. But I want you to look at the circles of intimacy that end up in this temple building. No longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens, members of the household of God, a holy temple in the Lord. Now, these are metaphors 
Paul loves to mangle his metaphors, and he does so here a little bit. These are metaphors that increase in intensity and in intimacy as we move through them. First of all, Paul says, you are fellow citizens. You Gentiles and you Jews, you are fellow citizens. God's people, get this, so important for us, especially in the COVID, post-George Floyd, post-election, post-everything world that we're living in. God's people have a higher allegiance to the church than they do to their nation, to their class, even to their ethnicity. So I had an interesting experience Friday. I, I live in Santa Barbara. I flew down to San Diego. I got a ticket for $57 round trip on Alaska Airlines. I wanted to see my new granddaughter. Oh, isn't that cute? She's so cute. Let me tell you. Uh, she weighs like nothing, and she's just gorgeous and beautiful little girl. So I went down to see her. I went down on Thursday, came back on Friday. And when we got back on the plane, we had to sit there on the plane for two hours while they fixed the plane. And the message is, if you want to get back on a good plane, pay more than 57 bucks for the flight. <laughs> but um, I sat there, and I, I saw a friend who I've known for maybe 12, 14 years. Her name is Lydia. Lydia is a Ukrainian. And I watched her talk on her phone in Russian for two hours with tears coming down her eyes, receiving texts, receiving pictures. My wife and I have known Peter and Lydia for a long time, and when we got off the plane, Peter was there, and they talked at us, really, for about 20 minutes. I mean, it was like a fire hose, and they were very wound up and very heartbroken, and they told us stories and showed us pictures that had been texted from Kiev while we were on the airplane. And they told us of friends who have no money and they're trying to get out and they have, the credit cards don't work and they're hungry. They don't know what they're going to do. Kind of, kind of took it from CNN to the heart pretty quickly. Lydia, I think, was... I thought she was kind of arguing that we need to send troops into Ukraine. And I said, you know, Lydia, I said, I don't think America's in the mood for another war. And she said, oh, no, 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 no. She said, we're Americans now. We don't either. We're, we're, we're more concerned about this country than we are about Ukraine. And I thought, wow, there's the analogy. As believers, we care a lot about the world that we live in. But we have a new citizenship, one with another. We are citizens in the kingdom of God. That's amazing. So while we care deeply about this country and a lot of things, our primary allegiance is to the people of God. Friends, the stunning truth is that fellow citizens, that citizenship trumps, no pun intended, trumps our political preferences, our view of the vaccine, our view of mask mandates, whether we shop at Target or Walmart, whether we go vegan or enjoy New York steak, whether we think the last election was stolen or was legitimate, whether we're Pentecostal, Pentecostal or Presbo. <laughs> Can't even say it. I am a fellow citizen with the homeless man who lives out of a shopping cart in a way that I am not a fellow citizen with the person who lives, lives next door to me who looks a lot like I do and drives a car like I drive and has a house that's worth about what my house is worth. Members of God's household, more intimate still, 
When we are members in a household, we're kind of stuck with each other. It's a picture of intimacy. Uh, when a married couple is in real trouble, they separate. They're no longer in the same household. And tragically, sometimes they divorce. But Paul says, no, in Christ, you are members of the household. You're in, under the same roof. And you become a holy temple in the Lord. Paul likens the church to a building, and he unfolds this picture one step at a time. Fellow citizens, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of Christ himself, and now you're growing into be a holy temple, he says, in the Lord. Now, here's what I got this week that I'd never seen before. I, I went in the back door of the museum, and I was fresh, and, and I thought, I'm going to teach the end of the passage, and we're just going to barely look at the beginning. Paul gives us, watch this, he gives us two good as gold truths about this building. Truths that I'd never noticed in the way I noticed them this week. First, look at verse 21. You are a holy temple, what's it say? In the Lord. It never crossed my mind that that is just upside down. Gods, Greek gods, live in temples. Temples don't live in gods. God lives in the tabernacle. The tabernacle does not live in God. People live in houses. Houses do not live in people. Now, Paul is a smart guy, and he's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, but you are a holy temple in the Lord. We expect him to say, you are a holy temple in which God lives. But he doesn't say that. So, so here's the question. Why would the apostle flip it upside down? Why would he say of, of us, the church, you are a holy temple in the Lord? Because when we come to place our faith in Christ, and I hope you've done that, when we come to place our faith in Christ, we then have what theologians call union with Christ. When we place our faith in Christ, we then find that we are in Christ. About 160 times, Paul will speak of believers being in Christ in his letters. So Jesus becomes our fundamental identity, our surrogate, our strength, our righteousness. Hey, just because we're there, would you turn the page and just go to Ephesians 1 real quickly? I just want to show you a couple of examples, and I, I just underlined these this morning. No big deal. Verse 1 of Ephesians 1, the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Verse 3, God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Verse 4, he chose us in him. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood. Verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance. You get the picture. We, when we come to know Christ, we are in Christ. So Paul will say we have been crucified with Christ, Galatians 2.20. We've been buried with Christ, Romans 6.4. We've been raised with Christ, Colossians 3.1. What you saw last week, we've been seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. 
our identity as believers is that we are in Christ. And friends, that should put a spring in our spiritual step. Because no longer do we have to kind of move toward Christ. We are in Christ. And when, when we are sealed by the Holy Spirit in Christ, we find ourselves wanting to do the will of God. That's why Paul can say that he abolished the commandments expressed in ordinances. We're not bound by the law. We enjoy pleasing God because we are in Christ. So the apostle wants us to see and to savor our true identity, that we earn nothing, that we go out in his strength and his power and his righteousness. But look at verse 22. Now Paul flips the image. The oddity, the architectural oddity is reversed. Remember, you are a holy temple in the Lord. Now he's going to flip it upside down. And what does he say? You are being built into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Does that blow your mind a little bit? You are being built into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You want to know where God lives? I mean, somebody asks you on Ocean Boulevard, where does God live? You say, well, he lives in his people. The, the church is a dwelling place from God, for God. Now, I know what some of you are thinking from maybe past experiences or experiences here. You're saying, Reed, you don't really know about my church. If you did, well, you'd see a different story, and this doesn't really apply here. And in fact, uh, Nancy hasn't talked with Susie for five years because Susie made a disparaging comment about Nancy's husband's waistline five years ago, and they've had a fight ever since. Reed, you don't get it. We, we had some problems on our board eight years ago, and, and a couple of people left, and, and people aren't speaking to each other even to this day. So, so this doesn't apply to us, surely. Reed, you don't understand. Ever since Pastor Nyquist left the church in 1967, it's never been the same. <laughs> I tell you something. Uh, Pastor Nyquist died. He's not coming back. <laughs> Stunningly, the church is all about being a dwelling place for God with a whole bunch of frumpy people like us who are sometimes glorious and sometimes selfish. Do you know how God got Paul, how Paul got to this grand conclusion of chapter two, the one that I'd missed all these years because I was just too tired by the time I got there? How does Paul get there? Paul is writing to a church that is utterly torn by racial animosity. Jew and Gentile, Jew and Gentile, they, they just don't like each other. And Paul begins our passage by speaking of that animosity. You know, there's some of you that are called the uncircumcision by those who are called the circumcised. And then he kind of drifts with sarcasm. What is made in the flesh by hands? He, Paul is the super Jew, but he says, this circumcision thing is really no big deal. We think of the American experiment as one that is fraught with hostility, don't we? I mean, we have an original sin in the American experiment. It's called slavery. We fought a war to end it. After that, we had 
Reconstruction, which was a disaster for the slaves in the South. And we had Jim Crow laws. And we're still wrestling with it. But friends, at least know this, we're, we're working on it. Man, it's, it's front and center in our national conversation. That's a good sign. In the first century, Jews hated Gentiles and they were proud of it. And Gentiles hated Jews and they were not ashamed of that. They, they relished it. Gentiles were proud to have no dealings with Jews. The Jews believed that the Gentiles were created to fuel the fires of hell. If a Jewish young man married somehow a Gentile woman, his parents would conduct a funeral for their son because he'd left the family. There was a phrase in Judaism, the best of serpents crush, the best of the Gentiles kill. And the Gentiles returned the favor. So Paul is writing to this church as a super Jew. He's circumcised on the eighth day. He's of the tribe of Benjamin. He's a Pharisee. He's, he's pursued righteousness. And he sees the blood of Christ and he says, you know what? That's where it all comes from. We've been reconciled to God and reconciled to one another. He has made us both one. Look at verse 14. He's broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. What's that all about? Well, Herod's remodeled temple was magnificent. I wish we could go back in time and, and see it. But there were outer courts. The outer court was called the court of the Gentiles, then the court for women, then the court of Israel, then the court of the priests, and finally the holy place and the holy of holies. The whole architecture of the temple was designed to keep people out. In that outer massive court where most of Jesus' teaching takes place, Gentiles, men and women and Jews, were free to mingle. But there was about a four-foot wall that surrounded that court, and periodically there were signs in Greek and Latin that we've discovered archaeologically. You can go see them in the British Museum that say, in Greek and Latin, uh, trespassers will be executed. That was for the Gentiles. If a Gentile went over that wall, he would pay, she would pay with his or her life. That was the hatred. And Paul comes along and says, Jesus broke that wall in his flesh. Hear this, my friends. In the church, there are no outer courts. The whole point of the book of Hebrews is that each of us is invited into that holy place because of what Christ has done for us. Wow. Now, the church, when she realizes this, the church is called the Bride of Christ, when the church realizes this, the church becomes a place of beauty that is more beautiful than Herod's remodeled temple. It's staggering. And I want to draw out very briefly two implications for us. Number one, the church costs Jesus his flesh and blood. Therefore, we should not be surprised that living in this holy temple will be costly to us. It will cost us something if we're going to live out our Christian lives in the context of being the church. There will be required of us constant humility, ongoing grace, mutual submission one to another. It's going to cost us something. We will have to hang out with people 
with whom we have some significant disagreements, but we do so because of Christ. I like what Don Carson said some time ago. He said, there are reasons, there are so many exhortations in the New Testament to love other Christians. And the reasons are that we are comprised of natural-born enemies. The church of Jesus Christ is not made up of natural friends. It is made up of natural enemies, Jews and Gentiles. What binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accent, common jobs, or anything else of that sort. Those are the things that bind other groups of people together. Christians come together not because they form a natural group, but because they have all been saved by Jesus Christ and because they owe him a common allegiance. In this slide, then, we should understand the church to be a band of natural enemies who love one another for the sake of Jesus. Good, isn't it? Implication number two. And I want you to know, I didn't talk to the elders. I didn't ask Tim for permission. So if you don't like what I'm going to say, blame Tim. No. <laughs> Don't go to Tim. Don't go to the elders, because this is all from me. Since the church was birthed in flesh and blood, we will live in the church in flesh and blood. Since the church came to be born from the body and the blood of Christ, we will live our lives in the church with our bodies, with our flesh, and with our blood. Now, here we go. I, I, I'm going to go out on a limb, and I believe this with all my heart. There is no such thing as a virtual church. You cannot go to church on your iPad, your iPhone, your laptop, your television set. You can't do it. You can watch a church service, fair enough. And praise God for our technology. We've come through two years of COVID-19, and it's been dreadful, and we've been afraid. And Lord willing, we're winding out of it. So I, I'm not an old curmudgeon up here. It says you shouldn't do that. But boy, I'm hoping that the church in America, the churches of America, will have the courage as COVID ends to shut off their simulcast of their services. Why? Because everybody that's doing any research on this is finding that there are literally millions of evangelical Christians who are saying, man, I really like sitting on my couch. This is great. And if Reed's sermon is no good, I just a couple of clicks and I go watch some other sermon. Friends, that is not the church. We need one another. We need to see our smiles, feel the frowns, rub each other the right way, rub each other the wrong way. We need to exercise all those things that make us the body of Christ. So, the church was birthed in the flesh of Christ. It will require our flesh and blood. If the church was so precious to Jesus that he was willing to die for her, then the church should be so precious to us that we are willing to live in her, one with another. Building our lives in Christ together, 
worshiping together. And we're not just talking about 9 and 11 on Sunday morning. We're talking about serving together, discipling one another together, sharing our resources together, being the body of Christ, and the world will look, and Jesus says, they'll know you're my disciples if you love one another. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, let's do it. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Carmel Presbyterian Church, visit our website at www.carmelpres.org or any of our social media pages. Have a blessed rest of your week.